Since the 1950s, the interstate highways have fundamentally transformed the landscape of American cities. Highways like the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York and the Hollywood Freeway in LA cut through neighborhoods, destroying homes and communities in a quest for smooth traffic flow across metropolitan regions. As these networks of highways grew, so did public battles over where and whether they should be built. It was a fight led by women in New York's Greenwich Village to stop construction of highway access ramps through Washington Square Park that launched Jane Jacobs' political career and spurred a new movement for historic preservation. You are listening to the Urban History Podcast. I'm Lily Geismer. And I'm Andrew Needham. Today we're talking with Erica Vila, professor of history at UCLA, about the legacy of highways, art, and architecture in urban America. In his new book, Folklore of the Freeway, Race and Revolt in the Modernist City, Avila tells the stories of many public encounters with the increasingly ubiquitous highway. Highways have exacerbated urban inequality, but they've also given rise to new cultural forms like murals, parks, and neighborhood celebrations that allow communities to claim the spaces created by the highway as their own. Avila challenges us to consider, why did some places like Washington Square Park become cause celebs while others were bulldozed? In the process, he reveals the hidden meaning of the freeway in post-war American cities. Eric, welcome to the Urban History Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Eric, could you describe for our listeners the issues that the book takes on and what kinds of topics it talks about? In general, I I describe this as a cultural history of highway construction in American cities after World War II. And in particular, I focus on the communities that were impacted by highway construction in the aftermath of the Interstate Highway Program of 1956. And what I'm interested in is how people within those communities expressed their experiences of inner city highway construction through many different forms of cultural expression, art, literature, murals, poetry, performance art, photography, oral histories, parades, public celebrations, et cetera, et cetera. And the argument is that this body of cultural work is a form of political expression against the urban policies that placed highway infrastructure in the vicinity of, in particular, working class minority neighborhoods, African-American neighborhoods, Mexican-American neighborhoods in the urban Southwest. And I contextualize that story by looking at what I call kind of the dominant narrative of the freeway revolt in which predominantly white middle-class or upper-class citizens of established urban communities like Greenwich Village in New York or Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, their struggles, which were largely the triumphs against freeway planners, Um, who were able to exercise a certain degree of power and privilege to prevent highways from being built in their neighborhoods. And so I I, I try to contrast those stories against the inner city communities of color that did not have the wherewithal to block the placement of the freeway. So in, in different chapters, I look at how different communities expressed their opposition to highway construction, even in the aftermath of highway construction, uh, through art, through literature, through poetry, um, through murals and other forms of of, of cultural production in the inner city. That's really interesting. I mean, in one of my lecture classes, I tell the story of 
urban renewal by telling and lecture form your Dodger Stadium uh, chapter and the kind of move of the Dodgers from Brooklyn to LA. And I mean, it's interesting as I think about it now that lecture ends, you know, the, the Dodgers won and uh, Chavez Ravine became Chavez Ravine. And it's this kind of narrative, there's a narrative closure to that story that one of the things I really appreciate with your new book is that it doesn't allow that narrative closure. Instead, you have all of these people who live with freeways now in their daily lives. And mm-hmm. they, as you really you put it in a lovely phrase, they make do with the freeway. So can you talk about how we should think about making do as a part of urban experience? Chicano Park comes to mind first and foremost. And that's a great example of how one community made do with the presence of the freeway quite literally in their face. If you haven't seen Chicano Park, all you need to do is do kind of a Google image search and you'll get many, many images of this park, which is located directly beneath um, this massive highway interchange that was built in the very heart of what was becoming a Mexican-American barrio of San Diego. And so in the course of of building this interchange, local residents with the support of, of neighborhood artists kind of channeled the spirit and the energy of the Chicano movement to protest the presence of the freeway in their neighborhood and to use art, and in particular muralism, as a way of voicing that protest. And when I talk about this process of making do, especially for working class, poor communities, communities of color, art, and other forms of creative expression like literature or uh, festivals, that becomes an important part of this process of, of making do, of using community resources, of using traditional forms of cultural expression, not just to fight back, but to integrate the presence of the freeway into the cultural fabric of the local neighborhood. I was wondering how the experience of living in LA has shaped the project. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that to a certain extent, this myth that I wrote about in my first book of LA as a freeway metropolis really ignores that vast population, largely immigrant population of people who rely upon buses and the emerging metro system to get around the city. Having said that, I think in some ways, LA still remains oriented around the automobile, and I'm one of those people who relies upon my car to get around the city. And, you know, as a historian, I I can't help but think back about what LA was like in the mid 20th century, in the 1940s and 1950s, when, you know, this, this glut of automobiles had not yet overwhelmed the landscape of the city. And I think the only way to get a sense of what this was like is to drive LA's freeway system, you know, between the hours of midnight and four in the morning when it's this vast open road and you can actually get from <laughs> Pasadena to Santa Monica in 20 minutes. And it's, it's actually a brilliant experience. And in that moment, you understand why freeways were built in the first place. And, and, and in those moments when they actually work, you can understand the freedom that the automobile affords, the freedom of autonomous, unfettered individual movement 
that in so many ways I think is embedded in this kind of larger ideal of American freedom, it makes sense to me as a historian that freeways were built to serve a growing population that became increasingly dependent upon the automobile as a primary mode of transportation. One of the things I really enjoyed about the new book is the way that you show how that kind of vision of unimpeded mobility that the freeway enabled was not just the kind of province of transportation planners, uh, but it enters into a whole way of imagining what the modern city means. And you really, you do a lot with what I would probably incorrectly term high art, right? To, uh, to, to show how much the freeway is part of a vision of modernity in LA. And maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, how that material came to be in the book. In many ways, that part of the chapter resonates with my first book, Popular Culture in the Age of White Flight, where you know I, I, I want to talk about how freeways conform to this kind of dominant mythology of Los Angeles as the ultimate expression of urban modernity during the post-World War II period. And I think if you look at the art of James Doolin or Catherine Opie or Wayne Thiebaud or Ansel Adams, it's that kind of uh, majestic, sprawling, commanding view of the urban landscape with the freeways front and center. And my argument is that's a perspective of privilege. It's a perspective of someone who has the privilege, literally, to fly in a helicopter and survey the landscape below. But it's also the privilege of people who have no physical relationship to the freeway other than their own aesthetic inclination to drive on the freeway with a, a sketch pad or to fly over the freeway and to, to capture that perspective, which I argue in the book planners usually took the same perspective, that on high perspective, which I think has a, a, a tendency to kind of level the diversity of the city into this sprawling mass that visualizes a need for freeways. In East LA, by contrast, the artists of Boyle Heights who affiliated themselves with the Chicano movement took their work, their painting seriously as a, a, a vital component of Chicano activism. And I think a large part of their imperative, at least in the 70s, in the heyday of the Chicano movement, was to paint scenes of everyday life in the barrio. And they realized that this is what made their work so radical. This is what made their work so forceful. I mean, if you think about the discourse of urban communities like a barrio in the mid 20th century, the term blight often comes up. Or if you look at redlining documents from the 1930s and 1940s, you can understand how these communities were literally defined as blight by planners and by public officials. And I think the task of Chicano artists was to say, hey, this is not blight. This is our community. And believe it or not, there was also beauty in this community. But it was their charge to paint scenes of everyday life in the barrio and to create an aesthetic out of that. And it so happened um, that the freeway was right there 
in their immediate line of vision. And I think that's how freeways emerged in the body of work that we've come to recognize as Chicano art. How, how do you think the freeway enters in to daily life in those communities? I think my question kind of became, how could it not yeah. enter in the experience of daily life? I mean, if you drive through a place like Boyle Heights or if you walk through, you can't help but cross a freeway in one way or another because there are six freeways that literally converge upon this two-square-mile area in East Los Angeles. So there's really no way of escaping the sight, the sound, the smell of a freeway, because they all converge upon the largest Mexican-American neighborhood in the United States. So, you know, for artists like David Boteo or Frank Romero or Carlos Almaraz, to paint East LA was to paint the freeway. There simply was no choice. I mean, I suppose that Boteo could have eliminated the freeway in his painting, <laughs> but if he wanted to capture scenes of daily life in the barrio, as it really happened for Mexican Americans in the barrio, you have to paint the freeway in there. And the fact that he chose to paint a truck belching exhaust stuck in traffic on the freeway, to me, signals an awareness of what freeways do to their immediate surroundings. You know, how many people have you met in your life have their wedding photos taken in front of a freeway? You know, it's not the ideal environment for that kind of activity. But nonetheless, there you have it. So often the story of freeways get told, the story of triumph and tragedy. And I thought that your book did such a brilliant job of moving beyond many of those binaries. And I was wondering if culture helps to do that. The interest in culture is a way of accessing voices that are usually left out of the you know, epic struggles between Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, for example or voices that are left out of the portrayal of the abstract forces, the impersonal forces that shape emerging patterns of inequality in the late 20th century American city. I think culture is critical in accessing those voices and in trying to understand how people who are left out of the traditional urban narrative how they've experienced these processes. It's, it's not a scientific way of understanding that voice, but I think you have to understand a thing or two about the significance of culture to urban Mexican-American communities and the role of culture in the Chicano movement during the 1970s. So for example, you know, art played a critical role in the Chicano movement as it flourished in cities like Los Angeles or El Paso or in San Diego. And Chicano artists in particular sensed that they had an important role to play to teach the community about patterns of inequality. And, and a lot of Chicano art had this very kind of pedagogical slant to it because for a community that historically has been left out of structures of education, and you know, middle-class civility, art played a critical role in transmitting 
the ideas that kind of galvanized the Chicano movement to begin with. So I, I think that as an urban historian, we need to remain sensitive to cultural expression and particularly its significance to the communities that are traditionally left out of the dominant narratives of urban history. That brings us to our, uh, are you now or have you ever been an urban historian portion of the, <laughs> the podcast? Great. Um, describe your route into becoming an urban historian. Um, I, I think it, it started with my kind of longstanding interest in and fascination with Los Angeles. It's partly personal, I guess. I mean, I grew up in, in suburban San Diego, and to me, L.A. was that big metropolis that had all the possibilities and opportunities that urban life affords. But as I you know, went through my schooling process, I became interested in Los Angeles as a historical problem. And by that, I think I was driven by a central question in my early research, is how did LA become what it is today in the span of 100 years? essentially. I mean, how did LA go from being this kind of dusty cow town of 30,000 people in 1860 to eventually emerging as the 13th or 14th largest urban conglomeration in the world at the outset of the 21st century? How did that process happen in such little time? It's astounding, I think, when you think about the particularities of Los Angeles history. And I think that opened the door to other sorts of questions. And those questions were informed by my introduction to cultural history and to cultural studies. And then that also was compounded by my own long-standing interest in not just Mexican-American history, but um, I guess what we might call minority history in particular. I think that's partly a personal program for my own sense of identity and my own sense of my family's history. I eventually kind of brought that to my study of Los Angeles as well. So, you know, the emphasis on race and ethnicity cultural representation, and urban space. Those are the, the three areas where I kind of locate my research, my writing at kind of the intersection of those three areas. And then I think as I proceeded with research on the second book, I noticed I'm starting to move beyond Los Angeles. But my starting point has always been Los Angeles. I'm an urban historian of the second half of the 20th century. And for anyone working in that period, and in that field, you have to grapple with Los Angeles in its own right. You have to lose the kind of Paris, London, New York frame of reference. And this is when I channeled the work of people like Rainer Banham. I think his work was so important in helping us to lose the kind of Eurocentric bias of urban history, to let go of the idea of arches and Greek columns as the summit of urban civilization and to begin to take seriously things like gas stations and drive-ins and coffee shops as the landmarks of a new kind of urbanism that Los Angeles cradled. There's mention of the Robert Moses, Jane Jacobs debate 
um, has yeah. come up in our in our conversation. And I was just wondering how you think the book forces us to see that debate differently. Well, I have to say, in writing this book, The Folklore of the Freeway, my main focus is on cultural production within inner city minority communities that were impacted by highway construction. That's what the book is about. And I hope that that comes across as the main focus of each of the chapters and of the book in its entirety. The story of Jane Jacobs and Rob Moses and the story of the freeway revolts as it played out in Boston, New York, Baltimore, San Francisco, that I think of as context or the folklore of the freeway. And I think before this book came out, those were the dominant stories of the freeway revolt. That's what people thought of as the freeway revolt. And, you know, Jane Jacobs comes to mind as the legendary hero who takes on Robert Moses to take down the freeway in Washington Square and in, in Lower Manhattan. And what I wanted to do in this book was to say, well, there were other freeway revolts, but because we're not attuned or we're not sensitive to culture and its political significance within certain communities, our understanding of the freeway revolt remains limited to these stories that dominate the story of urban America after World War II. So I hope that readers are left with a more complex, a more diverse idea of what the freeway revolt was really about. It wasn't just about what happened in Cambridge and New York and San Francisco, but in many other cities that had much more limited resources to you know, muster a fight against the freeway. And I think there's a way that your book allows us to rescue some of those ideas from the path toward gentrification. That's the other path that Jacob's ideas have been taken, at least in New York, of prescribing a specific form of place that can be rapidly gentrified and get more toward her ideas about the value of community. You know, community's articulation of what spaces are important to itself, which is the stuff that falls out of the developer's ideas of Jane Jacobs provides us a vision of what a potentially gentrified neighborhood looks like. You know, we can replace this hardware store with a CVS and build low-rise apartments over it, and it will look like the kind of neighborhood that Jane Jacobs describes, but have very few of the qualities that she talks about. Right, right. Unless, you know, a giant freeway has been plopped down That's in the right. middle of that landscape, which suggests that the privileges that Jacobs was able to exercise in her fight against Robert Moses, it's not characteristic of many communities that endured construction of, of highway infrastructure. I should say that the book fundamentally made me rethink the Freeway Revolt narrative and really grapple with certain elements of it. And I think particularly the idea that those stories that we tell are really the exceptions. And I like your idea that that's more context than the main story that should be right. addressed. Um, that's encouraging to hear. And I, I hope that we can take that story and use it to understand other aspects of post-World War II urban history in the United States. You know, what are the cultural expressions engendered by deindustrialization? I think the work on hip hop has been excellent in helping us to understand the cultural consequences of those processes. 
and how people whose communities have been ravaged by deindustrialization have something to say about that process. And in general, I think as urban historians, we're not sufficiently trained to hear that voice as part of the larger story of American urban history in the second half of the 20th century. And again, this comes back to the idea of why th I think culture is critical in understanding that story. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of how your first project, Popular Culture in the Age of White Flight, shaped how you approached your second project. Popular Culture in the Age of White Flight was exclusively focused on Los Angeles, and it came out of a, of, of a long-standing interest that I've had in the history of LA. I think one of the, the fundamental concerns of that book is the issue of urban identity. How did LA's identity transform and take shape during the post-World War II period? And what fascinated me about the post-war period is that this is the moment that I understand as LA having arrived upon the national and the international scene as a major player in an increasingly global network of cities. And I talk about you know, the many reasons why that happened during the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And so in that book, I talk about different facets of what I understand to be the kind of defining myths, if you will, of LA's identity. And I singled out film, I singled out Dodger Stadium and the arrival of the Dodgers from New York in the mid-50s. And there's a chapter in there on freeways as well. And in that chapter, as in the other chapters of the book, I talk about how freeways contributed to this dominant myth of post-World War II Los Angeles, one that corresponded to this emergent, white, suburban, vaguely middle-class identity of the city. So the chapter on freeways in that book is, is about how freeways contributed to this myth of Los Angeles. Now, of course, when you're talking about whether it's cultural processes like uh, making a film, for example, or creating a theme park, or if you're talking about structural processes like building uh, an interstate highway network or an interurban highway network, there's always struggle, there's always resistance. And in the book, I didn't focus as much on the struggle or on the resistance as I did upon the contribution of these events and processes to this overarching dominant myth of LA as this kind of white middle-class suburban paradise. And yet, in the course of doing the research for the freeway chapter, I came across a lot of material, mostly from minority communities, from working class, black or brown communities, that included critical portraits of the freeway. And I think in popular culture in the age of white white, I talk a little bit about the criticism from the communities that were hit hardest by highway construction, like Boyle Heights and East Los Angeles in particular, but I didn't really get a chance to grapple with that material in its entirety. And so in the course of writing the first book, I had to leave a lot of material out. And much of that material was reflective, I think, of the voice of East Los Angeles in particular. And so after I finished that book, I wrote a short article that I published in a journal called Aslan, which is the Journal of Chicano Studies. 
and there I talked about more of that material, that critical perspective of the freeway that surfaced in East LA, especially during the 1960s and 1970s, which also coincided with the height of the Chicano movement, which had a kind of epicenter in East Los Angeles. So I, I wrote that article, and over the next couple of years, I realized that there was more material out there. And it wasn't located just in Los Angeles, but it was located in San Diego or El Paso, Texas, and in other cities. And that it wasn't just Mexican-American communities that were asserting this critical perspective of freeways, but other communities as well, like African-American communities in Miami or in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was at that point that I, I began to realize that there's another book here, which took up this critical perspective from working class communities of color that were hit particularly hard by the highway during the 50s and 60s. Thanks so much for talking with us, Eric, and uh, thanks for listening to the episode of the Urban History Association podcast. We'd like to thank our producers, Dale Windling and Rachel Guberman, for all their technical assistance, as well as the Urban History Association. Join us next month for more conversation about urban history. 